All right, that's our passage this morning. If you want to navigate on your Bible, whatever Bible you have, to John chapter 6. We're going to look at those 15 verses. We're studying through the Gospel of John, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The topic we find there, Jesus miraculously multiplies bread for 5,000 men. The title of our message, Wonder Bread. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to sit at your feet, as it were, to receive from you uh, and the Holy Spirit insight and wisdom for living. Uh, but mostly, Lord, just to, just to be in your presence. You promised in the book of the Revelation that when the church gathered, that you would be in the midst of the church in a special way. Lord, we know that you're omnipresent, but you promised to be here in a special way when, when Christians get together. And you also told us that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so, Lord, as that converges this morning, we pray that you would teach us from your word more about you. After all, the Bible is about you. You said, lo, I, become, uh, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And so may we look to you, understand you better, and be able to serve you uh, with a willing heart as we leave this place. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Those who agreed said, Amen. He's called Sushi Man. German triathlete Jaroslav Bobrovsky went to a restaurant that featured an all-you-can-eat buffet. Bobrovsky ate 100 plates of sushi weighing 18 pounds. The owner banned him from further buffets. Joao Carlos Apollonio ate 15 pasta dishes in a buffet restaurant in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He called the waiter over, but instead of closing the bill, he ordered eight more dishes, four portions of lasagna and four of gnocchi. The manager asked him to leave. 5,000 men enjoyed an all-you-can-eat buffet of bread and fishes hosted by Jesus. None of them were turned away. The miracle presented a teachable moment for Jesus with his disciples. It says he tested them not to see them fail, but to teach them a lesson. Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great multitude. The lesson for disciples in all ages, lift up your eyes to see the multitudes the way the Lord sees them. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, lift your eyes and see your source. And number two, lift your eyes and serve with God's resource. Let's lift our eyes and see our source in verses 1 through 9. In the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, Legolas the elf has better vision than men, dwarves, or uh, wizards. What do your elf eyes see was a question put to him by Aragorn. Jesus had better vision than the 12 disciples. And so let's see what Jesus' eyes see. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Passover was approaching, we learn in verse 4, and Jesus was making the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. We cannot be reminded enough that we are strangers and pilgrims passing through earth on our way to heaven. We are looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. In this city, the New Jerusalem, we have custom mansions made for us by Jesus. Are you a camper? Do you like to camp? I've hated camping since I was born. But I, I acknowledge that that doesn't mean you shouldn't camp. Uh, and it, you should be happy because I'll never have your campsite. Uh, <laughs> camping is uncomfortable, you'd have to admit. 
Our pilgrim journey could be compared to camping. Uh, we have no permanent home. We're just campers with vagabonds walking through this world. Maybe you're a glamper. You're glamour camping. Uh, you know, with your 3,000-foot trailer with seven televisions in it and stuff. And you, you know, <laughs> wow. I mean, that's some real camping there. Just because there's dirt outside doesn't mean it's... But anyway, you're a glamper. <laughs> But, and that's okay for this world, but not, you don't want to be a Christian glamper in the sense of getting too comfortable with the world. For example, camping versus glamping, Abraham versus Lot. Abraham, a camper, he's the one that was looking for the city whose building and maker was God. Lot ended up in Sodom doing some glamping. Didn't end up very well for him. Uh, you know, he lost his wife and kind of uh, some other things as well. Uh, and so you, you want to be a solid Christian camper and keep your life uh, as clear as possible on the way to heaven. Verse 2, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were, were diseased. It sounds like Instagram. They followed Jesus. But they were literally following him and uh, as word was spreading through social contact along the pilgrim road, and it was a great multitude. Is there a difference between miracles, signs, and wonders? The Holman Bible Dictionary, a reliable source, says, the words used in the Bible to describe the miraculous include sign, wonder, work, mighty work, and power. In the Old Testament, the two Hebrew words most frequently used for miracle are translated sign and wonder. And so we could say that miracles are signs and wonders. The sign aspect of a miracle is to point to God. They engage the mind. The wonder aspect of a miracle is more a description of engaging the heart. Now verse 3 says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Jesus was quite the mountaineer. The Mount of Olives, the Mount of Transfiguration come to mind. Those were both mountains that he climbed and uh, different things happened on them. Matthew mentions Jesus and mountains seven different times in his gospel. Jesus' descent from this mountain is part of a typology that develops in this passage. We're going to discuss that in just a moment, but keep that in mind and see if you can figure out what it is as we're moving forward. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. The Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt. It also inspired hope for a deliverer like Moses who would come and free the Jews from Rome as Moses freed them from Egypt. This explains why the multitude will try to make Jesus king in verse 15. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Sometime in the night, the Father and Jesus agreed on a miraculous food distribution. They'd open up a pop-up restaurant there in the wilderness, call it Booney's Bread Buffet or Barley Bell or Lord and Loaves, where you could get all-you-can-eat bread and fish. Uh, no one turned away. At the end of Spider-Man Homecoming, Tony Stark wanted to introduce the web-slinger as the newest member of the Avengers. Uh, 
Peter declined the offer, feeling he wasn't quite mature enough. He said he'd be happier to remain a neighborhood Spider-Man, a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And then as he walked away, he turned around and he said, that was a test, right? And so that's the kind of test that we're talking about. Not a test to see someone fail, but a test to prove them and see what they're made of. And so Jesus took the opportunity to test his boys. His plan had nothing whatsoever to do with purchasing food from a marketplace. But he asked, where shall we buy bread? Philip answered him, six months worth of salary worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have even a little. This was an appropriate answer to the question as it was posed. They did not have the resources to purchase enough bread. But remember, this was a test. In, I think it was the fifth grade, our teacher passed out a test and told us that no one in the history of the world had ever finished this test in the allotted time. And, and our teacher kept going over that in different ways until you, you, know, you were really like primed for the fact that you wanted to finish this. You wanted to be the first one who ever finished this test. And I forget the time limit, but it was 25 questions. And when she said go, everybody just piled into that test and answered all 25 questions. But no one passed. Uh, no one got it in on time. But no one read the directions atop the page either, which said, answer only question number 25 and turn in your test. And, and so, uh, that, so it was a test to prove that kids don't read instructions. And kids that don't read instructions grow up to be adults that don't read instructions, and they build your cars and houses. Uh, or they work for Ikea. Uh, you ever tried to put something together from Ikea? They purposely break it in half so that you have to figure it out. But anyway, uh, so it, it was a test to prove them. The disciples had witnessed many, many miracles already. Jesus had already catered a wedding where he made water turn into wine. Now it would be nothing for him to cater a, a picnic lunch in the wilderness, but they defaulted, uh, defaulted to their natural thinking because of the way Jesus posed the question, where can we get enough bread to, uh, and you know, bring it here to them? Helen Keller said, the only thing worse than being blind is having vision but no sight. Part of lifting your eyes is to think supernaturally. One of Jesus' disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Philip dismissed any possibility of feeding the 5,000. Andrew thought they might be able to gather enough to make stone soup. You've heard of stone soup, right? It's an elementary school fable. Uh, there's a lot of versions, but in the one I heard, three monks come from, uh, they come in to, uh, upon a small famine-ridden village, war-torn, and they find that everybody is afraid of them and hiding in their homes, starving to death. So the three monks begin to make stone soup. The soup's starter is water and three round stones. I don't recommend this, by the way, unless you uh, already have pica, uh, but anyway... One by one, the monks convinced the village people, not our village people, but their village people. How many of you have heard of the village people as a group of people that sings? Man, I have gotten so old. 
I don't know what's contemporary anymore, but anyway, don't go out and look up the village people. Pretend I didn't say anything about that. It's going to get us kicked off YouTube for sure. But anyway, to help, so they went to the people to help them make their soup by sharing their spices and vegetables and other valuable ingredients that they had small amounts of. And it thus becomes a feast thanks to the generous sharing of resources. Nice try, Andrew, but no stone soup for you. This wasn't going to be the solution. The disciples did not fail the test. Their responses revealed their need to look beyond resources to the source. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus encouraged his disciples to lift up their eyes. In chapter 4, he said, lift up your eyes and see the fields white for harvest. So he had already taught them to do this, but they didn't apply it in this situation. In other words, they didn't see this as a spiritual situation. Where are we going to feed these people? There's no McDonald's. All right, so there's no use worrying about it. And Jesus was trying to teach them that everything has a spiritual component. We don't read that the disciples lifted their eyes and no one asked Jesus, what do your God eyes see? Jesus' question made it sound like it was up to Philip to figure out how to feed the multitude. We often think that way, as if we could do anything apart from the Lord. We assume that ministry requires resources that we do not possess. Of course, in America, that's mostly money. We never have enough money to do what we believe the Lord is calling us to do. And that's why many churches and parachurch organizations are constantly fundraising and even using worldly methodology. We have a philosophy here of where God guides, God provides. And so there's uh, tremendous needs in the world. But we have the resources that God has made available to, to us by the generous giving of his people. And so we meet the needs that we are able to meet and led to meet, uh, you know, in that way. We're, we're not wringing our hands about what we cannot do, but what we're spending time in what we can do to minister to the people that are there. I always think it's weird... And it's just a personal thing. You can edit this out of the tape later. But I always think it's weird when a church's vision is to have more people. Your vision should be to teach the people, and they will bring in more people. Uh, you don't, you know, Chuck Smith used to say, well-fed sheep reproduce themselves. And so, you know, your vision shouldn't include a desire to double in growth. Uh, but to have a deeper spiritual growth because that is what is going to bring people in relationships, not, uh, not methodologies and programs and things like that. And, and so um, we stay away from that. It was impossible, obviously, for the disciples to resolve this need. They must throw it back to Jesus, expecting the Lord to tell them what to do. When Jesus asked Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat, the right answer, or at least a better answer, would have been, you know, Lord, and just wait it out. You're going to give me a tough question? I'm going to leave it up to you because I have no idea. I didn't know how we were going to make water into wine. I know even less about how we're going to make bread. Go to the source and wait for his resources. While waiting, remember that the ultimate need of the multitude there was salvation. It was what he'll say later in the chapter is living bread. And so we do always have enormous resources to share with people. We may not have money 
uh, and, and objects, but we have spiritually the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And we can tell people that Jesus died for their sins on the cross and rose from the dead that they could live forever. And when they scratched their head and said, what's that's all about? We said, well, think of it as an exchange. In fact, the Bible talks about it as an exchange of clothing. Every one of us in our natural state as a human being, the Bible says, well, you have filthy rags on. You have a garment that cannot be accepted into heaven, no matter how good you are. No matter how Mother Teresa you are, your garments are filthy when, it, when compared to heaven. And God says, but that's okay because I have a white robe of righteousness I can give you, and then you will be accepted into heaven, but you're going to have to get it from Jesus at the cross. He'll take your garment off of you and put his garment on you when you believe that he died for your sins. And that's how it works. And so that's what we're here to share with people. And then afterwards, we pray with one another and read the word and, and grow spiritually and uh, go out into the world and serve the Lord. So there's a lot that we have that we forget in terms of resource. You know, we're too busy wanting physical resources when the greater resources are spiritual. In, even Jesus, one time that some guys, it'd be like right now, they broke through the roof. Can you imagine that? You're in church and they break through the roof bring down a guy on a pallet that's got, uh, you know, that's uh, paralyzed, and Jesus says, oh, yeah, your sins are forgiven. All right, can, can I walk? And, you know, and Jesus, oh, oh, yeah, sure, that's easy. I can heal you easy. A little bit harder to forgive your sins, I'm going to have to die for that. And, and so Jesus always on the spiritual cusp of things, and even though he pointed, uh, he put this question the way he did to uh, Philip, he expected a spiritual response. Secondly, lift your eyes and serve with God's resources, verses 10 through 15. Have you heard of Course de Garçon de Café? Probably not. That's the name of a competition that tests the speed that a waiter can carry a loaded tray without dropping it. It originated in Paris and it spread to 53 countries. The 12 disciples of Jesus got a crash course in waitering at the Course de Garçon de Wilderness. Verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Miracles can create a lot of work. John, the author of this gospel, was there. He estimated the multitude as 5,000 men. We would say 5,013 to include the Lord and the twelve. Numbering only men isn't a woke way of putting it because there were women and children. Oh well. Estimates of the total number range up to 15,000. And so let's assume conservatively that we're 10,000 people, a great multitude. Each of the 12 disciples would be responsible for a group of nearly 900. Now some of you have waited or waitressed. Can you imagine coming onto your shift and say, yeah, you have this section of 900 people over here. <laughs> and even though they weren't really taking orders, they were just distributing, that's going to take some time and work. I mean, how much, you know, how much bread and fish can you carry at a time? You know? And who are you going to start with? And you know that crowd wasn't, uh, uh, you know, well, it was a typical restaurant crowd probably, a little bit grumbly. Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Common core math is a snap compared to God math. One commentator writes, 
These five loaves, by a strange kind of arithmetic, were multiplied by division and augmented by subtraction. I, I didn't get that, but uh, it's weird. When you subtract something from what you have, you usually end up with less, but not in this God math where you get more by giving. Our generosity is treated as an investment in the kingdom, and the dividends are phenomenal. John Bunyan wrote, A man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. And many of you have a gift for giving or have had times of giving in your life, and, and God has honored that in different ways. Not always financially. It's not that you give $10. You know, I hate this stuff on TV. Give me $10 and God will give you 100 What's that all about? Why don't you give God $100 and it will be done? You know, I mean, so... And so we're not talking about that, but God has a way of multiplying his benefits in your life as you're generous. Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Now this gathering of the fragments is as good a place as any for us to talk about the typology of this chapter that we put on hold earlier. A multitude of Israelites was following their deliverer in the wilderness and had no bread to eat. Does that sound familiar? Is there a story in the Old Testament about a multitude of Israelites who followed a deliverer in a wilderness and had no bread to eat? Well, sure, it was Moses. And in the Moses-led Exodus uh, that the Feast of Passover commemorates, we remember the feeding uh, of Israel with the manna from heaven. Note the following. Moses came down from a mountain to minister to the Israelites. Jesus came down from a mountain to minister to the Israelites. Moses miraculously fed the people manna in the wilderness. Jesus miraculously fed the people bread in the wilderness. The Israelites were given orders to gather the manna. The disciples were given orders to gather the bread. I came across the following on a Messianic Jewish website. Both Moses and Messiah are born in a time of national bondage. Both redeemers appear after Israel waits generations for redemption. Both redeemers are destined to break the bondage of Israel and lead her into the promised land. Both perform unparalleled signs and wonders to validate their ministry. Both act in the role of lawgiver and singular authority of Torah. Both fill the role of intercessor between God and the nation. Both do the work of reconciliation, renewing God's covenant relationship with Israel when that covenant is compromised. The Israels were slaves in Egypt around 400 years before Moses was born. From the last words of the Old Testament until Jesus was born, again, around 400 years. In the book of Exodus, the first Passover in Egypt was celebrated by sacrificing a lamb and eating unleavened bread with bitter herbs. Moses mentions no other items on the menu. A little bit of a timeout from our study this morning. Passover 2022 is going to begin the evening of Friday, April 15th this year, and the, uh, it'll end the, end, uh, the evening of Saturday, April 23rd. Christians like to enjoy hosting what they call Pasto Passover seders. The word seder, S-E-D-E-R, means order. And so it, it, there's an order that they follow in their Passover festivities. Now, the modern menu includes gefilte fish, which is poached fish dumplings. That sounds really great, doesn't it? Uh, I'm going for that. How about just you know, meatballs? But anyway, uh, matzo ball soup, brisket or roast chicken, potato kugel, uh, some kind of casserole, and something called zimus, which is a stew of carrots and prunes. 
sometimes including potatoes or sweet potatoes. I can't even imagine the mixture of flavors there. The original Passover, the, the first Passover, Moses mentions only unleavened bread, the lamb, and bitter herbs. That was the entire meal. The lamb, bread, herbs. Uh, a bunch of traditions have been added to the modern Passover as well, not just food. My problem with satyrs is that no one explains that this isn't how Passover was celebrated in the Bible. If you want to commemorate Passover, eat the lamb with bitter herbs, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That's from Exodus 12. And then in chapter 13, it adds that you should tell your children the Exodus story. Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? Uh, we're doing it to commemorate the Exodus from Egypt. Uh, and so, again, I'm not against that, uh, but somebody needs to tell you that, hey, this isn't really, this isn't the way Jesus observed Passover. He, he didn't have all this order of service and all these extra food items and all of that kind of stuff. That came in the second century BC, or uh, AD, rather. Now, back to our study, the multitude followed after the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed for them on a subsequent Passover. Scholars think Jesus uh, observed at least three Passovers. This would be the second. And the next one, a year later, is the one that he would be crucified at as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you've got the multitude following the Lamb of God, and they are mainly eating bread. Lamb, bread, sounds like Passover. And so there's a symbolism just in what they're actually doing. They're kind of enacting the Passover with Jesus present there with them. Jesus then tells them, gather the fragments so that nothing is lost. I don't want to make too much of a single word, but the word lost can be translated perish. It's in the same family of words as perish in John 3.16. Whether intended here or not, Jesus is not willing any perish from the multitudes of lost humanity. I'm pretty sure that Nick didn't read my study last night. Maybe he did. Did you read my study last night? But I'm sitting here first thing in the morning, and all of a sudden we're singing John 3.16 song, and he's praying about John 3.16, and I'm talking about John 3.16. So I think the Lord's involved uh, in what we do, you know, because he's putting it all together. Therefore, they gathered up the fragments of the five barley loaves of the uh, bread and basket uh, and whatever I'm saying right now, which were left over. <laughs> It's not, it's not the disease. I still have my mind, but uh, uh, let's start that verse again. I, I think maybe I'll go back to bifocals, but anyway. Therefore, verse 13, they get, watch how robustly I can say this now. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. The disciples, by the way, are going to be called the 12, thank you, for the first time in verse 67. It was a special designation that comes into play in the book of Acts, but just bear that in mind. Each disciple had a basket to carry. Scholars, you've got to love these guys, they can't agree on the size of the baskets. It matters to them because some suggest that these were huge, heavy baskets, and the Lord made them carry them to emphasize how wrong they had been. And so, you know, like these giant rucksack on their back, you know, some of the athletes do this where they add weight and they walk along, you know, and you think, wow, great, I'm glad I'm not an athlete. Uh, but, you know, so they think of it as some kind of punishment. The Lord is showing them that ministry to him and to others comes first, 
But God doesn't forget their needs. When they was, you know, they weren't, they weren't munching as they went. How would you like it if your waiter was testing your food as he came? <laughs> you ever had that happen to you? You know, it's like, did he just take a bite of my garlic bread? What is this, you know? And so they were, as fast as they could, distributing food, and people were wanting food, not knowing, you know, okay, Jesus is doing a miracle, it seems, but when is that going to run out? I mean, if you're number 5,000 down there, I mean, somebody had to be the last guy served, maybe with the slowest disciple, some fat disciple that couldn't get there fast enough. I mean, maybe there's not going to be a fish for you and, and stuff. And so, uh, you know, uh, God, and so, but, so they're not eating. And then they have to gather all this up. But after it was done, they have baskets full of food to eat. And so God doesn't forget your needs as you serve him. The 12 had a long, hard day of waitering. People can be difficult, as those of you who have waited or waitress know all too well. In 2019, a waiter in Paris was shot dead because of slow sandwich service. That's a hungry diner. A servant is always going to be treated like a servant. And the more you are like a servant, the more you're going to be treated worse. Don't expect advancement, recognition, or reciprocation serving the Lord. He is the reward. Servants do what their master tells them. They don't have job descriptions, unions, or arbitration. They serve at the pleasure of Jesus. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but if somebody comes to me and wants to be in the ministry and then wants a job description, they're fired or not hired in the first place. You know what your job description is? servant. Well, I've watched Downton Abbey. I mean, there's different kinds of servants. There's, uh, you know, there's silverware polishing servants, and there's pouring servants, and there's all kinds of weird servants, and I hate that show, by the way. I just have to have to add that, uh, but uh, you can like it all you want. That's fine. It, you know, that's, it's America after all. Uh, not Canada, but America, and anyway, but, uh, you know, you're a servant. I mean, what's your job description? To serve. Well, what does that mean? What needs to be done? Uh, I don't know. Figure it out. There must be, and, and if you can't find what needs to be done, then there's no place for you, right? I mean, you, we don't need people to just hang around as potential servants. We need servants, and we're all servants as, as, you know, in the Lord. Billy Graham once said, when we come to Christ, we're no longer the most important person in the world to us. Christ is. Instead of living only for ourselves, we have a higher goal, and that's to live for Jesus. Then those men, verse 14, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses wrote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Jews believed the prophet was a deliverer like Moses. The crowd followed Jesus on account of his miraculous healings. They had experienced a miraculous feeding. He must be the prophet Moses spoke of. It seems like go time for the kingdom of God on earth. Verse 15, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. You can take the Savior out of the mountain, but you can't take the mountain out of the Savior. He's back up on another mountain. 
You might recall that immediately after Jesus was baptized by John, God, the Holy Spirit, drove him into the wilderness. The devil tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights, and one of those temptations was to take him to a high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world. Now he was on a mountain, and the Jews were showing him the kingdom of Israel and saying, you can be the leader. They didn't understand the cross, but they're essentially saying to him, you don't need the cross to become king. You can just go straight to Jerusalem with your miracles. And so they were tempting the Lord. On a doctrinal note, verse 15 establishes that Israelites and Jesus understood the kingdom was a rule of God over the nations of the earth from a throne in Jerusalem. It is not a spiritual kingdom that people mystically are part of. Now, there are spiritual aspects to the kingdom. It's accurate biblically to say we are in the kingdom now because God reigns over all. But there is a real physical kingdom coming to the earth when Jesus returns a second time. Uh, and uh, and they, under, they, they, they weren't making a club here. They weren't having a kingdom club with a secret decoder ring. They were saying, you're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to make you king. And with your miracle power, you're going to overthrow Rome. Janet Oak said, those who choose to be servants know the most about being free. You can choose or refuse servanthood. The Lord leaves it up to you. It is an easier choice when you lift up your eyes and see the harvest and the hungry and realize that but for the grace of God, there go I. I don't mean to give the impression that if you look to the Lord as your source, he will grant you the physical resources you're asking for. He might do that. He can do that. Most likely, his resources for you will be spiritual. They can be summarized by his sufficient grace. But as we touched on earlier, you have tremendous spiritual resources available to you. The Bible says we have the gospel in earthen vessels, in broken vessels. Uh, the gospel is a treasure beyond all the treasures in the universe because through it, men can find eternal life. It is the good news that you are a hell-doomed sinner but that Jesus has paid the price for your sin and you can know God for eternity. And, and we have all these other reasons. Once you become a Christian, then you have God the Holy Spirit living within you. God lives within you. And he can help you uh, accomplish the word of God. So many people are trying to be good on their own or, or living the Christian life on their own. I got this, God. Don't worry. I've, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mature Christian now. And we can't do anything on our own. But with God, we can do all things. Uh, in, you know, and, and he enables us to keep the scripture. Marriage, I always use as an example, right? Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Impossible. Not only is it impossible, I don't even want to do it. If, if it was possible, most people don't want to do that. Submit to him? Treat her like that? I mean, that's the whole basis of marriage counseling. I don't, I don't want to do that. Christians like to say, I can't do that. And God would say, oh yeah, yeah, you can because I told you you could. And when I tell you you can do something, you can do it because I'm empowering you to do it. You don't tell your children to do things they can't do and then discipline them for it, do you? Hey, honey, I know you're five years old. We drive down to the store for me and get a pack of Marlboros, would you? <laughs> bam, bam. 
that's not right. And so you become a Christian. Now you, now you can do things that you could never do before. It starts a transformation. You're a new creature, a new creation, and it starts a transformation that concludes either through your death and resurrection or at the rapture of the church when God finishes you and makes you perfect. And so, man, being a Christian, it sounds a lot more exciting than it ever did before. A word to non-believers who might be here this morning. Lift up your eyes. See Jesus lifted up on the cross. He is there for you. He's there instead of you. That you not perish, but that you have everlasting life.